What the Actual Fork podcast is co-hosted by two intuitive eating registered dietitians, yours truly, Sammy Previtt, owner of Fine Food Freedom, and Jenna Warner, owner of Happy Strong Healthy. We can't stand diet culture bullshit and love keeping it real. Our mission is for all humans to believe that they are made for so much more than chasing a smaller body. We are also here to share with you that food can be fun and pleasurable again. Although we are medical professionals, we are human too. We are not afraid to share our deepest, darkest secrets and how years of our lives were taken by diet culture. We started this podcast so no human has to feel alone in their journey towards food freedom. So get comfy and join us for a casual convo where you can expect to laugh, cry, learn, and grow. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of What the Actual Fork podcast. Sam and I are smiling huge right now because we just interviewed Mimi Cole, who is at the dot lovely becoming on Instagram, who you probably follow because she has many viral Instagram posts on here. Um, and we just spent the last, I don't even know how long just lost in hearing her talk about her field. So Mimi is a therapist in training. She is in school. Um, but what really, really, the reason why we wanted to speak to her is she is so incredibly vulnerable and she shares her real life story alongside her education in every single post that she shares on Instagram. And her specialty is talking about anorexia in all bodies plus OCD. And she also specializes in discussing orthorexia and what that is, what it means, um, and what it looks like too, which is something that we really dove into deep today. She started her Instagram in 2019 and it has grown to 23.8 thousand followers. Probably by the time we launch or air this, it'll be higher than that. Um, and she's just incredibly inspiring. Yes. And I think it's important, like how you just said, like she's still a student. And I think that is so important. And we joked with her, I forget if that was on or off air, but it doesn't matter either way. Is that like, just how you and I always say, like what we teach today, how we work with people, how we hold space. None of that we learned in college or at our dietetic internship. Just like when we asked Mimi a, a question, I won't uh, say what, but she was like, oh, absolutely not. Like we never get this. Tra-. Like, so it's that same idea of like, it's just so cool to see a student who just gets it so early. And like, she's going to be such an amazing therapist. And she, she already is killing it just by how she holds space and the things she posts. And so it's so cool to just talk to her and get her perspective on everything. And the way she so openly shares her experience. I mean, her story that she shares in the the opening of this episode, she's very clearly shared before because it was just like so easy for her to share it and so relatable. And so I believe that her experience, like she said in there, you know, I I think that was off air, but her experience has really made her able to connect with so many more people. And like I mentioned in this episode, every single post that she shares on here, she's almost like sharing what people are thinking and they don't want to say out loud. And so like Sam just said, like she has the ability to, sh- to hold space for almost 24,000 people without even realizing it, probably more than that. <laughs> yes. 
Yes. And Glennon Doyle comments on her posts. So, I mean, she's kind of a big deal. (laughs) She's made it. Yes. Oh, it's beautiful. Absolutely (laughs) has. And then of course we had to, like I texted you before we started this episode, I was like, she's a therapist in training. I need to talk about boundaries because I struggle with them constantly. So I'm so happy we kind of got into the boundary space with her and tied it into orthorexia um, and just disordered eating. Because I think I don't know about you. And I would assume that it's like, once someone makes peace with food, that's one of the hardest things is because you're surrounded by these people in diet culture and you're trying to keep your peace with food and your body. So boundaries is, it it has to be a part of your intuitive eating journey. Like there's no way around it. And it's probably one of the hardest parts for people. I mean, making peace with food is, is the beginning, right? So like that is the biggest hurdle to jump over to start, but protecting what you've created, you know, with a boundary is really difficult now that, you know, we're recording this right now as rules with COVID are changing and people are now going to be around potentially more people than they have been in a long time. We should have talked about this with her. Um, But, you know, if you think about it, those boundaries become so important to protect the work that you did by yourself during this time. I know a lot of people have created so much for themselves in the past year. And now to be with other people testing their boundaries, it's difficult. So she gives a beautiful definition of what a boundary is and takes it a step further and discusses how you can set one with this extra piece that I had never heard before that I'm not going to tell you because you need to listen to the episode. But I love how you tied that in. And I know I can assume just like our clients at Find Food Freedom with, you know, happy, strong, healthy, that you're seeing the same thing as this new layer of anxiety of, yeah, okay, I'm, I was safe in my house. I made peace with food. I feel really good about it, but that's without some of these external social triggers. And literally today, before we popped on one of my one-on-one clients, like that's what we were talking about. They went to a new social setting something super triggering was said to her about her body. It's just not freaking okay. But that's where these boundaries are really important because we know that we can't control the triggers, but we can control how we respond and keep our, like you said, keep our peace that we work so hard for. So I think this episode is a wonderful culmination of so many things. And so as always, we'll just stop talking about it so you can actually hear it. Cause I feel like we get so excited. So here we go. Welcome Mimi Cole to What the Actual Fork podcast. For those of you listening, you probably recognize her name on Instagram, The Lovely Becoming. She's a therapist in training and we are so, so happy that she's here. Thanks for being here, Mimi. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm so excited. Yes. And like I said, right before we started recording, I've been following your page for probably over a year now we connected and I, and I feel like I know you, even though this is the first time I'm actually talking to you. Um, so we're really excited to pick your brain and to get started. We love to ask each guest 30 seconds or 30 minutes, however long you want to spend on it. What is your story, Mimi? And how did you get to where you are today? professionally and personally? That's a great question. Um, so it started off, I always like to say, when I was in high school, um, my parents and I did like a 90 day fitness challenge. 
Um, and so we had a nutritionist, um, and I'm specific about saying nutritionist because that doesn't really mean anything. Um, and uh, we went to this gym and we were doing all these workout classes. And I think it was like prizes for who lost the most weight or something like that. Um, but I was really uh, into that um, at the time. Now, reflecting back, I think there were some positives of being able to like have community. And I think that there's a definite pull to diet culture, um, but it's also really harmful too. Um, when you look at like weight loss goals that are intentional. Um, and when you think about um, like this belief that your body has to change for you to feel good in it and your body has to change for you to be healthy. Um, and those just aren't true things. Um, and so I started doing that and then I started um, eating quote healthier, um, going to the gym a lot, um, eating by myself, isolating, um, and, and really developing what's called orthorexia. And so orthorexia is an obsession with clean, healthy, right eating. Um, and it's really toxic, <laughs> um, but it's really also very glorified and praised in our society because people think of clean eating as this means of being good and pure and whole and connecting our morality to um, the foods that we eat. And it's an easy out um, from comparing people and considering an in and out group. And so what that kind of means is that people are able to quickly say, okay, they eat clean like me, they're good, or they eat bad and they're not good. Um, but there's really a lot of nuance when it comes to accessibility, when it comes to the morality piece, et cetera. And so after that, um, I uh, kind of continued to eat less and less and more foods became bad, which I think is one interesting and insidious part of orthorexia is that it doesn't really end. Like there's always better superfoods that come out and there's always worry about like, well, now fruit is bad or now, um, you know, avocados have too much fat or something like that. Um, and so it starts off as kind of this attempt at health and wellness um, and really spirals downwards into an eating disorder. Um, so uh, with orthorexia, I also had OCD. Um, and so that was kind of a interesting mix to have with the rigidity around food and body, but also around um, lots of other things. And um, just a quick definition, OCD is obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, and it's characterized by unwanted intrusive thoughts that are opposite to your values and beliefs and either physical or mental compulsions. And so it doesn't have to be outright hand-washing. It doesn't have to be, I like to be organized, um, which it really isn't. It can be, um, you know, I'm scared I'm gonna harm someone or I'm scared that I can't protect the people that I love. Um, and it's really an attempt to seek certainty. And so I started my Instagram um, in 2019, I think, um, right at the beginning. And so it's been a little bit. Um, I really liked uh, some other dietitians I was seeing and was starting to get into the eating disorder recovery world. Um, and I loved how vulnerable they were able to be alongside their professional knowledge. And so I wanted to do the same thing. And um, I wanted to hold space for people like my therapist had held space for me. I just started therapy um, when I started undergrad a couple of years ago, which is kind of crazy to me that it's not been too long, but um, I think it's important to do advocacy work and to be human and vulnerable because that's what people really relate to. Um, and because it's like important that we help reduce shame and um, are, are vulnerable with one another um, and trusting. And so, yeah, that's kind of my story in a nutshell. Thank you so much for sharing all of that and dropping all of those knowledge bombs, as well as just thank you for your vulnerability and sharing your personal struggles, which I'm sure so many listeners are going to relate to.
absolutely. It was, I mean, I could listen to you talk all day. So I'm super excited that we have you here right now. Um, one question that came up for me is in your studies right now in school, becoming a therapist, do you guys talk a lot about orthorexia? Does it come up more because of the state of where we are right now with social media and younger kids. And I was actually just working on a post about chlorophyll water because apparently now that's like the magic bullet to cure everything on social media. And it's like these little things get taken so far out of context and out of control that orthorexia rates have to be like through the roof, but most people don't even know what it is. So do you see a lot more of that now in your studies and in the work that you do? Absolutely not. Um, we spent- <laughs> I was hoping she was going to say absolutely. absolutely. And I was like, yay. <laughs> She's like, absolutely not. <laughs> no, definitely. We spent, I think, one class on eating disorders and we didn't talk about um, orthorexia because it's not a diagnosis in the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. And so the conversations no. are lacking, which is so crazy to me because it's something I talk about a lot and I think is so important and frightening. Um, but yeah, to answer that, we definitely do not, I don't think that word has been uttered in my first half of grad school, except for maybe by me. <laughs> That's so insane. Just like, I don't remember learning about intuitive eating in school many, many years ago. Um, that's wild and so not right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I think, a po- I mean, you said this Mimi while you were speaking, but, and I think it's important to just like really hit it home again for listeners is that a lot of the things that contribute to orthorexia are glorified in diet culture. So disordered eating habits, such as counting calories, like, right. Bringing our food to social events, um, you know, all like isolating, eating, only eating air quotes, good foods. Like these are the things that people are genuinely doing them because they think it's benefiting them when really, when we're in this intuitive eating health at every size space, eating disorder recovery space, it's like, no, 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 no. Those are, can actually be harmful. So it's, it, that breaks our hearts to hear that it's not coming up, but it just proves how important you are and that you're such a light in this world of like, you're a therapist in training. But if I go on your Instagram page, I'm like, I'm, I need Mimi right now. Like, I don't care if you're in training. I think you hold some damn good space for your audience, um, and are going to continue to change the world. Thank you so much. That means a lot to me course. So tell us where you're at right now with your study. So how long until you become a therapist or what's left for you on your professional journey right now? Yeah. So I will start seeing clients through a practicum experience in August. Um, so I'm really excited to have my first clients. And, um, so that's kind of like you start off with a couple clients, uh, caseload per week and you have pretty intense supervision um, just to make sure you're doing everything well and ethically um, because we're still learning. And then we'll do internship, which is um, more caseload and more hours per week in January. Um, And then after that, when I graduate in May, I'll be able to apply for temporary licensure. Um, And so you'll be able to see clients like in a group practice setting and have a um, temporary licensure once you pass the exams, once you do et cetera, et cetera. Um, And then it's a process too. So you have to get enough hours and supervision hours to be able to be considered fully licensed. Um, And so it's a long journey ahead. Um, It's (laughs) gonna take some time. And then there's specialty 
um, like certifications that are important. So maybe getting trained in DBT or getting your certified eating disorder specialist takes some time. Um, if you wanna specialize, getting an intuitive eating counselor certification um, and just picking up new skills and learning. Um, so professionally, it's gonna be a long time till I am fully licensed. And um, you know, I don't think I'll ever feel perfectly like capable of answering every question, being the best therapist ever, but um, I'm excited to keep learning and trying. I mean, but your Instagram is already the best, being the best therapist ever, because everything that as I'm scrolling back and like re-looking, I spent quite a bit of time yesterday on your Instagram page, <laughs> but um, I mean, you really hit on what I would consider most people's biggest like things that come up in their head and things that they worry about. I don't know what the correct terminology for that would be. I'm a little sleep deprived over here. My baby's in his uh, four month sleep regression at the moment. So pardon me with these blank thoughts, but um, you really hit on so many important things that people are thinking and don't feel comfortable speaking up on. Um, and I know one of the things that Sam really wants to talk about today, which I think you have quite a few posts on as well, is just really about boundaries and setting them for yourself um, or really allowing yourself to hold space for yourself too. Um, so with that said, can you teach us? <laughs> and I think using like your own personal story could be helpful because so many of our listeners, you know, struggle with disordered eating, struggle with orthorexia, maybe unknowingly. So maybe using yourself as an example, Mimi, of like, what did you find most helpful going through recovery? Um, how did you set boundaries in a world that's a $72 billion diet industry? Like what boundaries did you set in place that help keep you safe moving forward? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so thinking about boundaries, I used to be the worst at boundaries. Um, I like would cry and text people and be like, I'm so sorry. Like I have something I need to tell you, but I can't say <laughs> <laughs> or I'd write letters and, you know, I'm learning a lot about boundaries. So one thing I'm learning, I don't think there are superior ways of setting boundaries. So I think there's this idea that, you know, you have to get an in-person conversation. You have to say it really well, and you have to get your message across exactly as you want it to. But if that is really hard for you, if you have social anxiety, if you are someone who hasn't practiced boundaries, it's okay to do something like a meaningful text that says like, I'm really, I wish I could, you know, have this conversation with you in person or, um, you know, things don't come across as easily um, unless they're face to face, but just acknowledging those shortcomings um, and being able to communicate how you feel, I think is the most important part. Um, another interesting thing is that sometimes people receive boundaries differently than you set them, um, which is really hard because, um, you know, there are times in my life where I thought I was setting good boundaries and people said, you know, actually it felt like you were cutting me out of your life. And that's really hard to hear. Um, so I think being open and flexible to changing the way that you set your boundaries and how, how that looks is important. Um, I think it's really crucial to understand that we're always communicating to other people in the best way that we know how. Um, and we can be more intentional about the way that we set up boundaries with others and that boundaries are bridges and not meant to push people away necessarily, um, but to invite them to a better connection and something that's more effective and helpful and growthful um, for each person. And so I think a lot of people with eating disorders are very boundary avoidant and they want to just like 
be really good to other people and be that nice, good person. Um, and it's really hard to go from that and swing the pendulum all the way to um, assertiveness. And so I find myself oscillating between aggression and passiveness. Um, and then finding that middle ground can be really hard. Um, so some tips I have, I guess, for setting boundaries are to start small um, and to start practicing them instead of just jumping all in and being like, actually, you know what, this isn't going to work, like nothing's going to work for us. <laughs> um, and, and really getting thoughtful about what you want out of the boundary. Do you want, um, you know, to not have someone in your life anymore? That's a really thing, something that takes a lot of thought. Um, do you want them to stop um, talking about diets or your body, for example? And then something that I think is really important to touch on too, is that especially with parents, sometimes when they set boundaries, they might say you're being so sensitive or, you know, we might as well not talk about anything and really make it about them and catastrophize the boundary. Um, and I think in those situations, it's important to be firm and say like, you know what, that's not okay for you to say that, or, um, you know, this is what's helping me and I need you to understand that. And it's okay to set consequences too. So saying, if you don't respect this boundary, then I'm going to have to say X, Y, Z. I've never heard it put that way. That was really, really, really amazing. <laughs> the consequences part is huge. I've never, I've honestly never even thought about that. Um, but that's a really important next step. I always tell my clients that a boundary is meant to protect you. So it might hurt somebody else, but that's okay. Mm -hmm. But with that same breath, you know, setting like the consequence piece to it, I think makes it a little bit more known, you know, that I really mean this and it's not because I don't love you. It's because I love me and I want to protect what we have, um, which is huge. So thank you for that. Yeah. I love that. Yes. And I think that's where I think a lot of people struggle, right? It's like, I was listening to Glennon Doyle's second episode oh. of her podcast, <laughs> who I'm obsessed with. And her, have you listened to her boundaries episode yet, Mimi? I haven't, but I adore Glennon with my whole heart. <laughs> same, same. And so her episode number two on the We Can Do Hard Things podcast is literally called Boundaries. And they were talking, her and her sister were talking about how people think that setting the boundary is the hard thing. Cause it, like you said, it feels so hard and scary, but it's not, it's like, once you set the boundary, it's the not folding when someone isn't happy with it. Right. Because setting the boundary, you're teaching someone how to treat you. And if they don't like that, it's easy to fold and be like, okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I don't know why I said that. And like, just like totally undo all of the work that you did with the boundary. And I, when they explained that on the podcast, I was like, wow, like that's so true, especially being a people pleaser, which I think all three of us are just from the little bit I know about you, Mimi, and I definitely know Jenna. So that's the hard part is when someone like, isn't happy with the boundary that you set, how do you you know, stay firmly rooted and say, no, this is to help keep me safe, which will help our relationship and so on and so forth. So thank you for all of your boundary knowledge. I absolutely love it. <laughs> yeah, well, it's really important to think about um, that boundaries are going to hurt other people, but they're also going to hurt us as well sometimes. Um, and I think that's really heavy because it makes it less enticing to want to set a boundary, knowing that it's going to cause us discomfort too, but it's also going to help protect us from further harm from other people too. Yeah. 
do you have any examples, whether they're personal examples or feel free to just give examples, you know, under that orthorexia umbrella, are there common boundaries that you see, you know, whether it's people on social media or clients you've observed or yourself, like any boundaries that you think are really important um, for people struggling with disordered eating or orthorexia? Yeah. I mean, for me, one of the boundaries that I have is that, I mean, I'm not great at setting this one, but (laughs) um, I think not responding to every message and comment that I get, which is really hard because I love like making sure people feel affirmed and um, like they're heard, but that's just not my job to make every person feel seen and loved. Um, And I think another great people specifically with orthorexia is like not talking about food in terms of good and bad, um, especially in recovery of being able to say, you know what, we're not going to talk about like cheat days or like sinful eating or things like that, that make it so hard, um, to recover and to heal your relationship with food. Um, and, and especially no numbers, no weight numbers, no gram numbers of, you know, calories or, or whatever. Um, it's really important to be as neutral as possible about food or, or even positive if you can be. Um, so yeah. So I raised my hand and then, and then it just, it was my turn anyway. Anyways, um, I have two questions for you. And this first one, I, I don't even know if we could collectively come up with the answer, but how does, and this is kind of backtracking a little bit, but when you mentioned that orthorexia is not in the DSM criteria and you did a beautiful job of explaining what that is, how does something, how does an eating disorder get to become in that DSM criteria? So anorexia, bulimia, and the different types, um, or offshoots of those eating disorders, we, most people know, but how would orthorexia be able to become part of that criteria so that we can get this word out more like who do we have to talk to I'm just kidding (laughs) but but how does that work and can you explain that a little bit if you have any knowledge to share there yeah so my understanding is that it takes a lot of empirical research and so when you do a research study for example you have to have a lot of participants you have to have funding Um, and so if people don't believe that quote like healthy eating is a disorder then they're not going to fund the research and it's not going to get in the next DSM. Um, And so there are a couple people that I know of doing orthorexia research, um, but it's really hard because for one thing, people don't necessarily identify it as a disorder um, because they think it's just a healthy eating regimen. Um, And also uh, like in, in DSM editions, for example, like binge eating disorder was in kind of like the back in the section where it was like, categories to think about for the next DSM. Um, And then in the next one, you want to have more research and more support to understand that this is a clinical disorder that has treatment, that has a specific um, criteria set. And so I think that's another problem too, is that orthorexia doesn't really have a set agreed upon um, criteria for it. And so um, you can get, quote, a diagnosis of it, but it's really up to the, um, the provider. There's like, uh, there's something called ortho 15, which is one potential test as well. Um, but there's not like a standard that everybody uses. And so basically it just takes a lot of money and a lot of, um, acknowledgement of, um, the pathological nature. So like pathological just means like it's, um, disease bearing, um, or like it's harmful. And so it's important to consider, um, 
funding and research and um, willingness to understand what it really is. Thank you. I mean, this you speak it so well. Thank you for explaining that for all of us. Um, and my second question is, you just have so many incredible posts on here. And I'm just, this is a random question, but what was your most viral Instagram, Twitter post that you have on here, whether it was something that was recent or a little while ago or something that you feel like it really hit your audience just so well um, with one of these topics? Yeah, my most um, viral post, I guess, was the one about um, when you, I think it's called when you miss your smaller body um, and what to do about it, which was really interesting to me. Um, and I mean, I think people really resonate that with that um, because everybody misses their smaller body um, that they had when they were a kid. And it's, it's very interesting too, because um, when we're kids, I think in adolescence, a lot of times we'll hate the body that we're in and then we'll grow bigger and bigger, um, because that's normal. Um, and, and then we'll be like, oh my gosh, I remember when I was so happy in that smaller body. And it's like, you were not happy in that smaller body. Um, and, and you never really accepted, um, where you were in your changing body. And I think that's why constant radical acceptance of our bodies as it changes and grows is really important. Perfect. Thank you. <laughs> That's amazing. I love, I love that you brought up radical acceptance. I think that's something with so many different areas right now of life that, that people can, can definitely relate to and need. Um, and I also just wanted to say, well, you guys were, well, Jenna, when you asked the DSM questions, um, thinking about too, how far we have to go with all eating disorders, how like atypical anorexia using heavy air quotes over here is still like, thinking that people in larger bodies, like that's atypical to have anorexia. Like we just want to make it vividly clear that you can have anorexia no matter what size body you live in. And the fact that that's even called atypical just proves like we have a lot of, lot of work to do. And a lot of people we got to talk to, as Jenna would say. I know. Let us know. <laughs> I'm from New Jersey. Remember that. <laughs> oh Lord. Well, yes. Well, we could seriously talk forever with you, Mimi. We just want to thank you for your time. And we always love to close off. We talked about a lot of different things today, but for anybody listening, if they could only remember one thing that you said today, or you could leave them with one parting thought that you want them to remember, what would that be? The first thing that comes to mind is something that I really hang on to um, is that if one day um, orthorexia becomes diagnosis in the DSM and you have already moved on and healed from it, your diagnosis was still valid and real. Um, because I think there's this idea that like, well, it wasn't a diagnosis when I had it or like I was sick when I was sick and didn't receive the care I needed. So now I need to relive that experience to get the care I needed. Um, and so it's really important to remember that your experiences are valid, whether they have a name at the moment you're experiencing them or not. It gives me the chills. Yeah. I think a lot of people need to hear that. So thank you so, so much for that validation. And I know we've said it a couple times today, but where can people best find you? And do you have any resources that you want to share with our listeners? Yeah. So I, um, uh, you can find me on Instagram at the dot lovely becoming, um, on Twitter. I think I got the lovely becoming without the dot, which was exciting. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, you can find me on my website, www.mimi-cole.com. And yeah, that's all you can think of. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much, Mimi, for this conversation. Thank you so much, Mimi. Guys, thank you so much for listening to another episode of What the Actual Fork Pod. We know there are a lot of pods out there, and we are so grateful that you are here listening with us. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe, like, share with all your friends and faves, and follow along with us on social at what the actual fork pod we promise to continue to bring you the hottest topics greatest guests and the most fun you can possibly have while fighting diet culture bullshit we love you we appreciate you and we will see you next week for a lot more fun why why if you why? have t-mobile 5g home internet you might be hearing this why a lot why every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours why why because your network gives priority to cell phone users why good question why not switch to cox internet with two times faster download speeds than t-mobile 5g home internet during peak hours okay stop the whys and visit cox.com 5g home for details t-mobile prioritizes certain t-mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion 